Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Richard Holbrook was the U.S. diplomat who nominated himself for a Nobel Peace Prize for settling the Balkan Wars of the 1990s and didn't get it. Man and mindset, Holbrook is still a cautionary figure, a sort of living argument in the annals of American power. He bestrode the world for almost 50 years as if he was the American century. A big new biography takes the other view, especially of the mindset, that the relentless projection of American power, the projection of Holbrook himself, mark, in hindsight now, the end of our glory days. In a conversation in my living room this hour, we're getting a taste of the argument with George Packer, who has written the history of Richard Holbrook in the form almost of a novel. The title is Our Man, Richard Holbrook and the End of the American Century. The decorated historian Frederick Logoval is sitting in and speaking up on the making of war and peace and the writing of biography. I'm starting off with a bit of a double-edged question to the author of Our Man. George Packer, the first note I made about this book was that it was sickeningly good in that you had found the perfect figure to embody the path of our history, my grown-up history, the slide to empire, the sorrows of empire, the imperial mindset that is now rooted in our government, if not in our roots. Was this anything like your sense in calling him our man? Not our man in Havana, but the embodiment of our disappointments. Well, I wouldn't limit it to disappointments, although there are plenty of them in the book. But the title was a lucky, desperate Hail Mary because I didn't have one. And he was our man in Sarajevo and our man in Saigon and our man in Kabul. And I couldn't call it all of those things, but I wanted to give it a title that suggested that you were about to read a novelistic biography because that's what I set out to write. So Graham Greene was in my mind and Joseph Conrad was in my mind and I suddenly mm. cut it short at Our Man and at first thought that's an absurd title. You can't just leave it at that. But the more I thought about it, the more it resonated because he embodied not just American ambition in the world, but so many of our characteristics and our confidence and our overconfidence and our energy and our blindness and our sense of our own importance. And he's a, in some ways a second tier character in history. He's not at the top. Most people at this point vaguely know his name maybe, but second tier was exactly where I wanted to be because I felt mm -hmm. it allowed me to see more clearly the pathways of government and of power than with a already known and already mm -hmm. sort of settled figure in history who you have to cut through so many layers of accepted knowledge and of self-protection. With Holbrook, there is no self-protection. It's all naked. It's all out there. So he seemed yeah. like a good figure to follow through the he decades. He was a type. I think of him, as he thought of others, as the action intellectual, kind of a vain flattering term. But the other phrase in the 
book that recurs and is always quoted is almost great, also heavy with irony. Take that apart. Well, he wanted to be great. But what that meant was not just to be Secretary of State, which he wanted desperately and never became, but to leave a mark on history. He grew up in the shadow of Dean Acheson and George Kennan and George Marshall and Averill Harriman. Those were his heroes. In some cases, they were his surrogate fathers after his own father died when Holbrook was 15. And for him, that was what life was going to be about. He was going to walk into history and leave his mark on it. Mm. There were all kinds of reasons why he didn't quite get to the top of that mountain. He came too late. There was no longer a world waiting for an American to create the Marshall Plan or NATO. It was a more complicated world, a messier world. There was more competition. We were no longer as trusted as Mm. immediately after World War II, which might have been kind of the the high point of our prestige. His first post as a diplomat was Vietnam. That was his searing baptism of fire. And after Vietnam, there could never be a role for an American quite like the one his heroes had. And then there were his own flaws. I was going to say, let's not go easy on the flaws. I mean, the story is, he starts out at Brown University in 1962 within months He's on civilian duty in the Mekong Delta with high ideals, but there's always about Holbrook a sort of a wink. He's also playing tennis in Saigon and loving it. He can see the horror of the war, but he can't quite say it straightforwardly or turn his life around it because it would have been bad for his career. He works a sort of mask of idealism, but nobody quite believes him, even from the beginning, or about American policy. There's an irony and a disbelief built into this story. You, you Tell it your way. I had his personal papers. They were given to me by his widow after he died. So I had letters he wrote to his fiancée at Brown when he was in the Mekong Delta. I had audio tapes of diaries he kept mm. during the Bosnian War, during the end of his life in uh, the Afghan War. So they were not purely innocent documents. He was always aware of history looking over his shoulder. Like they, even the letters he wrote at 22, you can tell there's a kind of a expectation that someone else might mm. read these. And yet they're also wonderfully spontaneous and full of detail. And so I had the rare chance to watch a young diplomat come to some reckoning right away with what was happening in Vietnam because he was in the Mekong Delta where the Viet Cong were at their strongest in 63, where the war was being lost. And he learned that not just from knocking on the door of Neil Sheehan and David Halberstam, who were in Saigon at the time, but from being the top civilian at age 22 in this very contested province. So, I want you to tell the story of the so-called strategic hamlets because he, right. somebody says there are 385 you know, fortified towns we've made or whatnot. This is the basis of our counterinsurgency. He gets there and finds 385. Where did they get that number? And moreover, the Viet Cong run them. Yeah, you can't um, visit them because they're too dangerous. Well, then they're not strategic hamlets. They're either flimsily defended death traps, or they belong to the Viet Cong, at least at night, if not day and night. He saw that quickly, and I think we have to give him credit for a lot of perception and intellectual honesty, because another 
diplomat might have just gone in with the ideological blinders so firmly in place that he would have just refused to even take the trouble to find out whether those hamlets existed. And Holbrook realized right away the reports going up the chain were false. And by the time they got to Kennedy's desk, they were worthless because they kept getting filtered through layers of wishful thinking. There's the rub. He saw right through it. There was bravery. There was dedication. There was insight, brains in all of that perception. But what did he do with it? This, to me, is the mystery of this sort of personality. There are almost two clear types. There are people like Halberstam, Neil Sheehan, my dear friend, you know, they thought they were on a great American project, and they thought, no, 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 this is an illusion, a delusion. Wait it's- a minute, Chris. So I have these tapes that at the Library of Congress that I listened to for hours and hours of Sheehan interviewing Holbrook in 1976 in Washington for A mm. Bright Shining Lie, his, his great, great book about the The best war. book in my view. I think so, too. I think so, too. It's the North Star. And at one point, Holbrook says to Sheehan— in Holbrook's living room in Washington. Do you ever remember a moment when any of us questioned the very premise of the war? And Sheehan says, no. And it's worth remembering well, that we questioned she, the premise. The, the, whether we should be here at all. And Sheehan says, no, we never questioned that. So Never, never. I'm not sure. David Hobson's n- first book, Making of a Quagmire, was a kind of way to win the war. Yep. Put the right and the Sheehan colonels wrote, in the And Sheehan stuff. wrote, no longer a hawk, not yet a dove, an essay in the Times Magazine in 66, three years later. So those guys... But he surely guys, came around. My whole point is that he came around in a way that Richard Holbrook never did because ambition was still the trump card it, in his You're day. right about that. Once Halberstam and Sheehan saw the war's futility and unwinnability, they never went back. That right, was it. Exactly. But Holbrook was inside the government. And so ambition, yes, but also I think... A certain myopia that comes when you're on the inside of a tremendous collective effort and to start questioning the fundamentals of it would be so not just bad for your career but psychologically crippling that you would no longer be able to function within that government. You would have to leave. So for whatever you want to call it, it's either you know self-blindness or ambition or arrogance or – simply inability to get far enough away once you're inside to see it as it is, that it was not until 67, four years after he arrived in Vietnam, that Holbrook accepted the unwinnability of the war and began to push very hard from inside for negotiation with the North Vietnamese. But it took four years going through four stages, as he described it to Sheehan in that interview, of disillusionment from questioning assessments to tactics to strategy to the war itself. That was a long descent into what if he had radical skipped doubt. the negotiation and gone straight Just to get con- out. confession? <laughs> right. I mean, why? He wasn't he- that type. He wasn't going to confess. He was not into lacerating self-searching. He well, this is this is so ironic because it's exactly the fault he found with McGeorge Bundy, who literally on his deathbed said, "The doves were right." It took him his whole life to see the folly of it. And Holbrook saw the folly in Bundy. Bundy. He couldn't see it in himself. Well, he was farther along than Bundy, much farther along. I mean, he was much closer to the doves. He was, by the standards of the government, he was one of the doves. But it's a bad standard, George, is the problem. Once you're inside, there's a limit. 
There is a limit. It's you either quit on principle or you What's start wrong with that. I mean, Daniel Ellsberg, did. a lot of them did. When you look back over the last 50 years at the key moments when people in real positions of responsibility quit on principle, there's a, an incredibly small number of them. And it tells you something about how hard it is when you're inside to give all that up, whether it's out of sheer raw ambition or also an illusion that the only way you can truly be effective is by staying in. Coming up, Fred Logoval remembers the other action intellectuals that set the pace in the 1960s. Names like McNamara, Bundy, JFK himself. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source. The late diplomat Richard Holbrook becomes our man in George Packer's telling of the story not least because he took the burden of our Vietnam War, which he hated, as an unshakable curse on his professional career. You write, Vietnam threatened the heart of his mission in life, which was inextricable from an American-led order. Yeah. And we're still, for whatever reasons, stuck in it. Chris, you're totally right about it, and yet I think... To see it from the point of view of someone whose career is government, to say I'm giving all that up rather than saying this was a great mistake, but I'm going to try to correct mm. it and then move us into a better direction. And if as soon as I quit on principle, I can't do that. We may fault them for that. We may rightly fault them for that, but it's asking a lot. I think we just have to acknowledge what we're asking of them if we're going to say, why didn't you quit? It fascinates me still that Dick Holbrook and I, both class of 1962 in college, kept crossing paths over the years. I had gone to Vietnam as a reporter in 1967 with the paratrooper general from World War II, Jumping Jim Gavin, when he was thinking of running for president against the Vietnam War. The war I saw was a murderous mismatch that the Vietnamese I met did not believe in. The line that sticks in Vietnamese-French came from an elder statesman who told me, c'est difficile pour l'éléphant écraser la puce. It's very hard for an elephant to crush a flea. But the war went on. For the New York Times, I covered George McGovern's anti-war presidential campaign in 1972, which won the Democratic Party's nomination. Well, McGovern was too dovish for Holbrook. He was wary of that left turn of the Democratic Party. And here you can really fault him because... Vietnam damaged a whole generation of Democrats, not because they were so pro-war that they lost all moral authority, but because they were the doves. Holbrook was considered one of the doves, and they were considered soft and maybe even treacherous. They had stabbed us in the back. And Holbrook spent a good many years after Vietnam trying to shore up the Democratic Party as a contender in the national security debate, which meant advocating the Contra War, uh, which meant being unwilling to privilege human rights over national interest in East Timor in the 70s or with Marcos. So I think Vietnam did in some ways warp those young diplomats, and some of them responded by trying to improve their credentials after Vietnam. Isn't that precisely the price that people pay for not being forthright? 
you have to hedge, you have to counter hedge all over the place. Well, I'm not soft, but I, you know, I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. into this war either. I wish we had a game in which people would speak their minds very clearly, not vote well, for and against the Iraq war as John Kerry did. Well, do you think there's a, a, a government in which you can be outspokenly and publicly against the government's policy and stay inside? No, no. But people in cabinets all over the world resign over this issue and they come back right. in the permanent government. Churchill, the most famous example, I suppose. Right, right. So if Holbrook had quit, say, in 65, the end of It's or not 66. about him quitting. It's about clarifying what's going on. There are no 385 working strategic hamlets in Vietnam. Let's get clear about that. He and was let's clear tell the about president that. Of the United no, States. I think he told Henry Cabot Lodge and Maxwell Taylor, who were, you know, way, way above him, exactly what he saw and thought. He told them as they were flying over South Vietnam on a bombing mission with the Ambassador Lodge was escorting, you're dropping bombs on places that you know nothing about, and you're telling the bombers they have to come back with empty bomb bays. People live down there. We're killing civilians. And Lodge said, you should listen to your fears, my boy, but don't be ruled by them. That was Holbrook, age 23 or 4, to one of the senior statesmen of the United States telling him, we're killing civilians and we're losing the war. So I don't think we should minimize what kind of courage that took. Did he then say, and if you don't stop, I'm going to go to the press and quit? Who would have paid attention? No one, but maybe for his own conscience, he should have. It's Fred Logoval's turn in this conversation. Swedish-born, now teaching at Harvard, Frederick Logoval won the Pulitzer Prize as a Vietnam War historian. First volume about the American complicity in France's war to save its colonies in Indochina after World War II, and then a second volume on President Johnson's escalation of the U.S. war in the mid-1960s. Fred Logoval's work in progress is a new take on the life of John Kennedy. So, Fred, I felt your mind lurking in and around this whole story of Richard Holbrook. How do you read it? Well, I, 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 I was fascinated by the discussion that the two of you just had, and I could have listened to you for much longer about what you were going we'll back, back and forth on. <laughs> and we'll be back. It's a marvelous book that George has written. What did you say? Sickeningly good is, is, a, is an apt description. One of the things that strikes me, and I guess I'd, I'd love to hear what George thinks about this, is I've been struck by the degree to which the top levels of the American government, and here I include John F. Kennedy himself, here I include Lyndon Johnson, Robert McNamara and others, were in fact pessimistic about the prospects in the war and felt from an early point that this thing probably was not winnable. I think the outstanding example, who I think we still don't grapple with, he still awaits his great biographer, in my view, is Robert McNamara. I've come to the view that McNamara in 62, this is before Richard Holbrook is even really out there, 62... Mm. McNamara saying, I don't think this thing looks good at all. And that continues right through. I'm not sure that McNamara was ever a true believer on the war. And so, you know, it's interesting, George, you say that it's only in 67 that Holbrook basically decides we can't win this thing. Earlier on in the book, I think quite revealingly, you quote from, I think, a letter from his, it's presumably, I think, early 64, in which he says, In the long run, we probably have to be here, I'm paraphrasing. 
And he then seems to even endorse a kind of domino theory, which is that if we, if we don't fight them here, we're going to be fighting them closer to home or in Latin America. So I don't know if you could, if we could just, periodization matters so much. And so I'm interested in knowing maybe a little bit more about his thinking in this regard. And as you say, he's not alone in feeling this way. Because yeah. as Chris pointed out, Ellsberg comes out in strong opposition. But in this period, Dan Ellsberg is a hawk. And he believes, as Holbrook does, there's got to be a way that we can figure this out. It's a bit like Lansdale, too. The mission is crucial. We're going about it the wrong way. The bombing isn't going to work. But by golly, we need to stay there. That's very different from wanting out of the war. I want to hear George's view, but I want yeah. to stick in a line. And it's out of your book and others, Fred. Robert Kennedy and John Kennedy and one of the sisters visited Vietnam yes. in 1951. And they both wrote in the journals. They were guided by people like Edmund Gullion, Foreign Service Officer, Seymour Topping of the New York Times. This is over. This is a French colonial project, and you'd be insane to invest in a war to get it back, for them or for us. And it was very, very clear in their minds. So this is Holbrook writing a letter to his fiancée back at Brown from the Mekong Delta in early 64. And McNamara has just visited on a yet another fact-finding mission, which he come, goes back to report to Kennedy that all is well. So anyway, if by air power we mean to win this war, thousands of Vietnamese will die and the enemy will resist far longer. We will be making a grave mistake and I am not happy about it. Of course, the irony of the thing, the whole thing is overwhelming if one is ever stupid enough to stop and think about it. Today in Vietnam, we are using by far worse weapons and worse, less humane tactics than the enemy. I have no doubt at all that we kill more civilians than the VC and with what might generally be admitted are less selective, less right tactics. I suppose that we are on the right side in the long run here. There is no doubt in my mind that if we lose here, we will be fighting this war in other countries in Latin America and Asia within a few years. But right now we are fighting wrong and it hurts. In the short run terms, we really should be on the other side. Take away the ties to Hanoi and Peking and the VC are fighting for the things we should always be fighting for in the world. Instead, we continue to defend a class of haves, which has not yet shown its real ability to understand that the have-nots must be brought into the nation. Let that be shown, and perhaps there will be an improvement in the situation, not of our making, but to our benefit. And then he ends, I think I'm beginning to see war, which God damn it, this really is, in the least glorified of lights. That is when the fight sometimes doesn't even seem worth it. So bloody is the cost, but there is no choice, really is there. Oh, man. I mean, this just is a great distillation, it seems to me, of where he is. George can correct me. Yep. Uh, and I think it, it speaks to a, a, a dilemma for him and others. I would say, I guess the other thing I would add is that I think by this point, well, by this point, JFK is, is, has died. But even in 63, I think JFK had long since given up the notion of the domino theory. I think he, I think in a sense, Kennedy is maybe a bit more sophisticated in his thinking than Holbrook is here. For domestic political reasons, I think he still feels stuck, partly for the reasons we've discussed with respect to what Democrats have to do. But that's a difference. The last thing I'll say is when you said what he concluded with about war and how horrible it is, that could be a line 
from one of those letters from JFK in the Pacific home in 1943 or early 1944. Strikingly similar passage. To me, he's saying this is an awful war. We seem to be on the wrong side. Uh, it's miserable. It's death. It's awful. But we're okay. And American leadership in the world is a must. That trumps every reservation. He's seeing he won't believe his lying eyes. He thinks that we're in a, it's a noble global cause. struggle with communism, which is what, uh. which is what, pretty much everyone in the U.S. government at the time thought, and most of the press corps in Saigon thought. And the question was not, should we be here at all? It was, how can we fight this war better? And I think it also tells you something about what happens when you're right in the middle of something as intense as a war, where to ask the fundamental question is almost suicidal, because you will Hmm. literally let your guard down and you'll get killed, especially if you're in uniform. It was when he came back to Washington in 66, at the end of his three-year tour, and went to work in the Johnson White House under... Bob Comer, as the civilian pacifications are, that he realized this war is tearing the country apart and we do not have the public with us enough to outlast the North Vietnamese. And that was sort of the strategic insight that he needed to get eight or 10,000 miles away from South Vietnam to see. He couldn't see it when his face was pressed up against the war. And I think that's a psychological reality that, that is often the case. You see it more clearly when you're out of it than when you're well, in exactly, it. Well, exactly. The fog of war. One more note on that letter, though. It seems to me the war is terrible, but we're okay. He's transferring the important role to us. It's about good Richard Holbrook and good American people. It's the self over the reality right in front of your nose. And it's, it's sentiment. The man said sentimentality is what adds self-love to mere sentiment. But there's a lot of self-love in that, in that letter to his fiancée. I'd say there's more of a, a somewhat blinkered vision that he inherited and that he had not begun to question. And I don't think it really is, I'm an American, therefore I'm good. It's we have a role to play that we are not playing very well here, but that we cannot afford to abandon. Fair you, point you, that he, yeah. he got that role somewhere. And I want to suggest, Fred, that he, he got it in the paragon of that style in a certain strange way was our beloved John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Talk about action intellectuals, a man who'd fought in the Pacific heroically, had an incredible way with voters, an extraordinary mind, and brought it all into the seat of power and has been envied ever since. But so many people created their, their self-images, their intentions around that, that mission, that idea, and they're still doing it. I mean, the action intellectuals, Bundy and McNamara, and uh, unto this day, I mean, Samantha Power, for example, to this day, the nightmare version in John Bolton, but these sort of wonks who want to be in on the execution of power as well as the plotting of it and planning, Holbrook embodies that, that devil no, he does. I, I think he does. And I do think there's a connection between JFK, no question. We should not underestimate, I think you would agree, the importance of careerism in this whole story. For sure. I mean, think about Holbrook as, yes, this 
young man who wanted to have a career like those heroes. And Vietnam is the first thing he runs into. And suddenly the entire project is for the first time facing not just failure, but catastrophe. How do you get past that? This became almost like the the project of the next decade for him, the 70s. How does he get past it in his career? And how does he help us get past it so that we don't become a diminished power and accept some kind oh, of second-class status? But still that status. fixation on our power and the projection of the U.S. brand he around never, the world. He never stopped believing, and you can fault him for this, but he never stopped believing that if the U.S. failed to lead, decided that we're just another great power and we're going to look after our narrow narrowly defined self-interest just like every other great power in the world, he never stopped believing that the world would be a worse place. And you can find all kinds of fault with that. I'm just saying that was the psychology, and it defined him to the end of his life. To me, it's the folly of thinking after World War II that we were the inheritors of the British Empire and British mission around the world. And I'm looking more and more, even as you speak, for the inaction Intellectuals, even Ronald Reagan, after the American barracks were blown up in in Beirut, presumably by the Syrians, said, "Fellas, you're coming home, and we're going to beat up Grenada on the way and hand out a lot of medals, but we're not going into that one." Well, I think that's the point that I was trying to make earlier: is that it seems to me that an action intellectual should also have the capacity to be an inaction intellectual, as you're saying, and it's it's about making tough choices. It's hard, really hard. For de- Democrats in particular, I think, in the Cold War to make those kinds of choices because Republicans become so good at, at using the soft on communism club. And for somebody like Holbrook, who is a Democrat, and as you point out in the book, always a partisan Democrat, in, in careerist terms, and we're coming back to that again, uh, he's got those choices to make. But I agree with you, Chris. I think that it's about knowing when you've got to make a stand as, as the United States and when not to. Right. And this, that, this idea that it should be action for the sake of action, a recipe for disaster. And Holbrook did suffer from that. He always wanted to be in the thick of it and thought we should. But then I think this should take us to Bosnia because there's a line that connects Vietnam and Bosnia, a very tortured line. Holbrook was a private citizen in New Year's Eve 92 who couldn't get a job from Bill Clinton, when after waiting for 12 years, a Democrat was finally back in the White House, and he couldn't get a job because he had pissed off so many people around Bill Clinton. So he was out of luck, and in his sulk, he decided, I'm going to Sarajevo. Coming up, Richard Holbrook's signature achievement was the Dayton negotiations that ended the Balkan Wars in the former Yugoslavia in 1995. It was a performance that coined a new word in Serbian, Holbruksiti, meaning getting your way through brute force. Here's a sample of it in his own words. Look, we were, our negotiating team, Wes Clark, Chris Hill, uh, the rest of our team, uh, Nick Burns' assistant, we were thrown into a situation which seemed pretty hopeless. We had nothing to lose, but we came down to the last hours of the last day. And before we got there, we were greatly benefited by the fact that we had bombed them. And I could say to Milosevic, you know, if we don't succeed here, we might just start bombing you again. I remember Milosevic saying, you'd be crazy enough to bomb us again? And, and I said, yeah, we're just that crazy. This is Open Source. 
For want of a job in the Bill Clinton presidency, Richard Holbrook invented an assignment for himself as his novelistic biographer, George Packer, is telling us. He was a banker who managed to get on an APC with a friend who was doing refugee work. He was and a banker who did most of his working time writing interesting books, but well, and did he close many deals? Or? No, he, was, he had no interest in banking. He was a banker for the money, okay. and yeah. So, and he wanted to be one of those Wall Street to Washington wise men, which was not going to happen because that, that no longer existed. But he went to Sarajevo in the middle of the siege on New Year's Eve, and spent 24 hours, met John Burns at the Holiday Inn. Of the New York Times, right? Yep. Visited the morgue, visited the cemetery, got the tour, and felt what Burns had come to believe, which was this is a war of fascist aggression against a multi-ethnic country. And so there is a political principle. It's not just ancient tribal hatreds, as Clinton was all too ready to believe. Came back to Washington seized with the idea that America had to get involved because the mm. Europeans were obviously unable to stop this war. Clinton didn't want to hear it. Anthony Lake, who had become Clinton's national security advisor, was sympathetic to that view but had to advise Bill Clinton, who was focused like a laser beam on the economy. And Vietnam was the shadow over all of them. It was the shadow over Clinton, who had his anti-war record to live down in order to mm. get elected. It was the shadow over Colin Powell, who was chairman of the Joint Chiefs at the time, who had developed an entire doctrine in order to avoid another Vietnam. We need an exit strategy. We need carefully defined goals. We need overwhelming force. It was the shadow over Tony Lake, who had been in Vietnam with Holbrook. And it was really only Holbrook who was saying, Vietnam is not Bosnia. And in this case, the lessons of Vietnam are the wrong ones. And I think history proved him right. So just as you need to know when inaction is the wise course for an intellectual and for a, a moral person, you also have to know that inaction as a principle can get you into trouble and onto the wrong course. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that's, uh, that's brought out in the book that I think is important here and that we should recognize, both with respect to Holbrook in Bosnia and also the later Holbrook, is that it seems to me that he believes deeply in the power of diplomacy. And that seems like a straightforward thing. Who doesn't? Right. But whereas, in fact, I think if you look at the record of U.S. foreign policy, the nation's leaders have been deeply skeptical about diplomacy. The idea of bargaining with adversaries or maybe even compromising in some way, I think American officials have found very difficult, not least during the Cold War and then afterward. So I think it's very much to his credit here that he says, you know, we got to bring these sides together. Maybe all we get is a truce. I think he would say later, I think you bring out in the book that that's probably all we got here, but that matters. Later on, he makes that same argument. You know, three cheers for diplomacy, I would say. Holbrook's measure of success in the Balkans in the 90s didn't count for much when Barack Obama won the White House back in 2008. For the Democratic nomination, Holbrook had bet on Hillary Clinton against Obama, but then Hillary, as Secretary of State, turned more hawkish than Holbrook on his troubleshooting job between Afghanistan and Pakistan. Obama disliked him. Holbrook was everything that Obama didn't want. Long-winded, lecturing, flattering, condescending. Holbrook couldn't understand why he had lost the next JFK, who he desperately wanted to win. He had this job on Afghanistan, which he knew from the start was a nearly impossible job. 
His only ally was Hillary Clinton, who had, was responsible for his getting the job as Secretary of State. Hillary Clinton was a hawk. She wanted more troops. She was very close to the military position. She argued that position to Obama's dismay in the White House. Holbrooke could not afford, and here we get to careerism, Chris, could not afford to have any daylight between him and Hillary Clinton. So around the Situation Room table, which is where the rubber met the road, he never said what he was thinking privately, which Mm. is, the surge can't work. I've seen this before. I know this from Vietnam. Obama had told him, I don't want to hear about Vietnam, to his discredit. He did not want Holbrook telling him, you're in the same position Lyndon Johnson was in in July 65, and you'd better be careful the generals don't steamroll you into an escalation that you can't get out of. That was Holbrook's message. He wasn't allowed to give it to Obama. Obama was tired of that kind of lecturing, and Holbrook was also afraid of losing his own standing. So he kept quiet as the surge was approved, and he kept quiet as his own instincts and one of his advisors were trying to find a way to talk to the Taliban. That was his diplomatic instinct. Let's talk to the enemy. No one at the White House wanted to hear that. No one in the Pentagon wanted to hear it. The CIA didn't want it, and Hillary Clinton didn't want it. So Holbrook was sort of alone with the ghosts of Vietnam and with the terrible fate of you're not going to win. You need to find a political solution, which is a very unpalatable thing if you hate the Taliban, but you have to talk to them. So it wasn't until the very end of his life that he began to push this hard enough that Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were willing to listen. And then he died in her office making that case. So you could say that his own fear of losing the very thin thread that he still had to his last job kept him from pushing the truth that he had kind of accumulated over a long life in government. His wisdom was not wanted, and he didn't have the courage to give it. He knew that somehow this was it, his last chance. And he was flying back and forth between Kabul, Islamabad, and Washington. He was in atrial fibrillation. He was overweight and not taking care of his health. He was in a, so frantic that people I interviewed said is he seemed to have ADD. He couldn't pay attention. He kept leaving meetings or getting on his phone. And he was in a state of, I think, real panic that he had lost Obama and was losing his last chance. And he knew this was the end. There's something poignant and pathetic about this old statesman who knows this is it and cannot get it done. And so the harder he worked, the more he wore himself down. And finally, he was sitting across from Hillary Clinton in her office at the State Department talking about outreach to the Taliban when she said, my God, Richard, what is happening? His face had turned this unnatural bright red. His aorta, which had had an aneurysm, had just dissected, had torn. The blood was Mm. seeping through the main artery of his body down into his lower extremities. They rushed him to the hospital and... I have a kind of minute-by-minute account because one of his aides was taking notes and Holbrook was telling him, are you recording my every witticism? He was himself to the last minute. He was telling him who should be told and in what order and when should the announcement be made, but also saying, don't let me die here. He was flirting with the young cardiologist. He was this frantic action always man to the very end of his life. The subtitle of this book, Our Man by George Packer, is Richard Holbrook and the end of the American century. Let's talk about the American century, what it was. You say, basically, it was Holbrook's lifetime, and it's over. How did we get there? 
What do we miss? I think it began in 1941, which was the year Henry Luce wrote the famous, yeah, coined the term in Time magazine. It was the beginning of our involvement in World War II. And it was World War II that propelled us to this role as global leader, inheriting, yes, the mantle of, of failed empires, of lost empires. The Cold War created a, this binary titanic struggle with all kinds of tragic misreadings of where interests lay and where possibilities lay, Vietnam being the biggest. The end of the Cold War freed us to bestride the world and solve problems that had been unsolvable because there had been a Cold War. Russia was flat on its back and not yet a resurgent nationalist force. China was not yet a great power. And that was the moment when a Richard Holbrook could go into the Balkans and do what the Europeans had failed to do and end that war. 9-11 was the end of that period. There was like an interregnum between the end of the Cold War and the global war on terror. And suddenly we're back to seeing our interests threatened everywhere and getting into hot wars. I think with Iraq and Afghanistan, the overreach and the loss of legitimacy and the erosion of international cooperation, alliances, institutions, and the financial crisis, let's not forget, and the erosion of our own middle class, all of that meant whatever we might have wanted to be, we no longer had or have the standing, the prestige, the will. The public doesn't want this role. That's why the Democrats aren't talking about foreign policy in this campaign at all. The public doesn't want to hear Thank it. You. Yeah. And so I would say Holbrook died in 2010. I don't know that the American century ended that year, but with the election of Donald Trump, who has been a full-throated opponent of all the things that Richard Holbrook thought we were about, you could say, we're, we can't go back. That's it. Something new is coming. And I, we don't know what it is. It all, a lot of it depends on whether he gets reelected or not. If he does, I think there will be a permanent shift to our being on a par with Russia and China as a great power looking after its own interests with no illusions that we have a larger role to play around the world. And what's so bad about that? The the rationale of the American empire, starting with Henry Luce, was, and may be right in 1941, that American fighting power could, should, must lead the world. But I think it outlived its usefulness long before the Iraq war, where it really crashed. And here's where I have to pick an old bone with you, George Packer. On the eve of the war in Iraq, you wrote a compelling piece in the Times magazine, including my friend, Kanan Makia speaking to and electrifying a meeting of intellectuals in New York on why it meant everything to him as an Iraqi, a child of the ruling class in Iraq, but militant against Saddam Hussein, why we must get into that war. We must intervene. He said it was a moral responsibility. And you quoted him saying, if there's a sliver of a chance of success, a 5 to 10% chance, you have a moral obligation to do it. You, I sensed, George, were moved by that argument, but it gave me a chill. If there's a 90 to 95% chance of wrecking a country and metastasizing war in the Middle East into Afghanistan and the Gulf forever, no, don't do it. I mean, again... I mean, yes, you were right. Wow. Oh, that's easy. It's obvious. History has proved it. 
the inaction. And you haven't been reading me since then because I've said it many times, if you're surprised. But of course, of course, it was a disaster. I saw it up close for many years. I know people who died. Yeah, it was, it was a strategic and moral disaster. Well, we can leave it there. With due respect to my... I thought he was my brother at the time, Kanan Makia, but I, I never got over that people bought that line. Fred Lokoval, you're in the thick of a major biography. A biographer's note, please, on George's art here. Well, I think it's, uh, as I suggested earlier, George, it's beautifully written, and I think it's a sense what I'm trying to do with JFK, uh, which is your book is a portrait of a man but also of the nation, as we've been discussing here today. It's also this this incredible part of U.S. history, U.S. foreign policy. One of the things that I'm grappling with, and I would love to hear what, what you have to say about this, George, is, is the early life. Because you have an elegant line at the beginning where you say, is it okay if we dispense with the early life? Do you mind if we uh, skip, if the, we hurry through the, the early years? Through, yes. Yeah, and there's yeah. only so much we can learn in nursery school and so forth. Maybe it also matters who we're writing about. So if I'm writing about John F. Kennedy, maybe there's more of an onus on me to talk more about, because I have several chapters. That's the subtext of my question. No, you were right. You're right to do that. But I'm writing about a upper mid-level diplomat whom increasingly few people have even heard of. And the only way I'm going to get them to read about him Mm. is by making novelistic decisions about how you tell the story. And the first one was to invent a voice for the narrator, which is not quite my own. It's more like the voice of, some, of, of a peer of his who's just kind of known this story. He's been a witness to this story. We don't quite know how. And I make no claims that are false. There's no Edmund Morris mixing of fact and fiction. But the voice is like a yarn spinner, someone who is telling you what he knows, not of a biographer, not of a researcher, because I felt that to get and keep an audience for this book, I needed to make it, give it the kind of propulsive, compelling quality of a good novel. That included passing quickly through the early years. But there was another reason, which is I just felt it was a losing game because Holbrook was so incapable of self-reflection. His own and his parents' decision was to erase the past, to, for example, they were Jews. They were refugees from Hitler and Stalin. Jewishness played no role in his life whatsoever, partly because his parents didn't inculcate it. They didn't even tell him, and partly because he wasn't interested in it. So I see him more as like one of those figures in history who lives through action, and you know him by what he's doing, not by the unconscious psychological forces that have somehow been brought into him by incidents from childhood or by parental influence. I could have gone the other way and tried to uncover that, but I also felt like that would have been a losing game. Do you feel that, do you feel that yes, in fact, we can't get really close to another human being? apart from ourselves, the only person, you know, we can really know is, our, is ourselves, as you say. Or do you feel after writing this that, no, in fact, I think I do know Richard Holbrook well. I absolutely do think that. I think I've, I have brought him to life on the page as much as I could. And 
the key to understanding what's going on inside him are those letters and diaries. You'd see the mix of idealism and egotism, which are the two constituent parts of his character and which are in uneasy tension. There's a quote at the beginning from Conrad, who was kind of my guiding spirit (laughs) in writing this book, that each without the other is useless. Idealism without egotism is feckless. This is me paraphrasing. And egotism without idealism is destructive. Holbrook often lost the idealist part of his character and became destructive. But when they were in balance, and I think the Bosnia chapter is where you see them in balance, he was capable of doing really important things. That's the closest I can come to a kind of analysis of his character. I think it's more, even when you're writing a novel, you don't portray a character through psychological analysis. You do it through showing, through revealing. And so what I wanted was to write a book that never stops, where you're constantly being pulled along the stream of a life so that you feel almost as if you're living the life with him without any reference to how I know this or who I interviewed or what I researched. I just wanted it to keep moving forward, which is kind of what Holbrook was like. George Parker, I think you read him like a book, so to speak, and I I was riveted by it. And I thank you for our man. And I thank you for this conversation. Whole lot of fun. It was great. Thanks. Fred Logoval, thank you for being the wise man of context. Well, it's a pleasure to be here always, Chris. We'll do it again. George Packer's new book is titled Our Man, Richard Holbrook and the End of the American Century. Fred Logoval is finishing the first of a two-volume biography of John Kennedy. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. George Hicks is our engineer with help from Max Liebman. Mary McGrath is our tireless diplomat. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time for Open Source, 